0: Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner,
1: Back by the Wood Pile. I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Ricardo Paljosa is a poet, writer, professor, art collector, and most importantly for this episode, an art critic. Pau Josa invited us into his home in Miami, Florida to discuss chiefly his theories when approaching an artist's work, especially in how we perceive or find meanings either intentional or projective. We start though by hearing the man's own personal story and how it from nearly the beginning was tied up with both words and images.
0: My name is Ricardo Pau Josa. I was born
1: in Havana, Cuba in 1954. Let's talk about when did you first become aware of art or develop a passion for it. Well, I remember that during my childhood I spent
0: countless hours drawing, uh, modeling clay. My parents were thankful when when the toy of preference was clay being exiles and refugees and we didn't have a whole lot of money. They thought I was going to wind up being an artist, a visual artist. Uh, Then at some point in the beginning of my high school years I suddenly really, I'd always read, I always loved to read and so I became much much more interested in language but I always knew that the visual arts would always have some kind of role in my life maybe not as a creator of paintings and sculptures but as a critic and as a curator, a commentator, visual thinking fascinates me. I think in very visual terms. So,
1: you mind talking about how your your family's situation about when they left Cuba and, and under what circumstances?
0: We, we were a working class people that had just begun in the fifties, and the late fifties, to enter into what could be considered a middle class uh, status. So we weren't, by any stretch of the imagination, rich or anything like that. But when the communist takeover occurred in January 1959, my parents, and especially my mother, became very immediately and clearly aware that a debacle uh, of unstoppable proportions was headed toward us. was upon us, actually. And a lot of Cubans the people who left in in 60, were usually the wealthy, who had money abroad or could take money out, and you know, and, and mostly the money they took was to like live for a while until the Americans overthrew it. You know, that was the the general Platt Amendment mentality. Right? You know, sure. the Platt Amendment was this, was, was this interventionist amendment that was put into the Cuban constitution, enabling the United States to intervene in in Cuban. Affairs, if necessary, and that was repealed in 1933 or 34. And but there was still this when Cuba was called the Platista mentality, that you know, no matter how badly we screwed the republic up and believe me we could do a, an excellent job of screwing the republic up, up on any given tuesday uh, <laughs> the americans would come and and, and you know fix it up and save the day yeah. save the day kill the bad guys and hey try it again you know <laughs> here's the keys here's the keys come on here's the bat come on swing come on take another swing at it you know the ball's the size of a zeppelin and we couldn't hit it you know <laughs> 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 you can't miss. Oh, we miss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a Brazilian uh, uh, senator, a friend of mine from way back, I haven't really seen him in ages, who had this, he was a a really witty guy, and uh, he would always say, he had this great phrase, um, Brazil is the country of the future and always will be. <laughs> we'll never have a president. Right. <laughs> Or you know, we'll or, get it fixed tomorrow. Right? Or, or Brazil never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that applies to every all Latin America, regrettably. I mean, I say it jokingly, but it is a sad, tragic, and and but yet unavoidable reality of the the, the talent, the real gift we have for uh, for continuously screwing up. <laughs> Anyway, back to nineteen sixty so my mother sort of took one glimpse of this lunatic who could speak for nine hours on a on a podium without even having to use the bathroom and uh <laughs> and realized we're in the hands of a schizophrenic lunatic maniac paranoid genocidal murderer. we better get the hell out of here
1: and for folks listening, we're talking about Fidel Castro, yes, right?
0: we are talking about Fidel Castro, yes, we're not you know we're not talking about Nancy Pelosi or yeah like <laughs> not yet, uh, not yet. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so. Everybody was, was, was you know, not everybody, but everybody was still in the hysterical, you know, Fidel mania phase. And my mother, you know, got us out. She said, no, we have to go, and we don't have any money, but we're leaving. And uh, so she scraped up whatever she could, selling stuff and whatever she had on savings, which wasn't a whole lot. And my father headed out first to Chicago, where, where he had a nephew. And uh, the only person we knew outside of Cuba, they had never been outside of Cuba. And that was it, we left for Chicago, he got a job there, in Gary, Indiana actually, horrible place, uh, and, and three months later we came. We arrived in Chicago on December 24th, Christmas Eve, midnight, on a train from Miami, a very rough ride, two days, it wasn't exactly a, you know an express luxury train. And, um, and we started a, a brutal, painful uh, adaptation. At that time, there was no American government doling out insurance and assistance to refugees. There was nothing like that. There was mm-hmm. a, You came, welcome to America, sink or swim, that right. was it. Which, frankly, I think is how it should be because it, it instilled a tremendous amount of strength in all the immigrants that came here and exiles. And then when we developed the nanny state, well then, then that we've seen a dramatic drop in in the resilience of uh, of, of subsequent generations. So, um that's how we, we got started here and of course eventually my mother got proven right and everyone else got proven wrong and she always said, It's too bad I was right and they were and they weren't. It would have been much better if Fidel you know, had been toppled and Castro had been, you know, hung by his heels like Mussolini and we would all be, you know, wrecking the revolving all over again, but it uh, it didn't happen exactly in that way. When we came to Miami, we from Chicago, we left in Chicago, we left Chicago in 62. We wound up in Tampa, but my mother couldn't stand the winters, and my grandmother, you know, or my father for that matter, we just had, had fed up with it. They got jobs in Tampa, and Tampa, there was at least a small Cuban exile community and an older Hispanic Cuban, now mixed with God knows what community, right. and and there was you know at least a flavor, but there were also new Cuban exiles, and Miami was a resort. Miami was like saying, I don't know... Uh, Naples or something you know a, a resort town nobody thought of it was a city and there were no jobs here so people mo- headed to places like New Orleans and Tampa and New Jersey of course and Chicago and all those places so we headed to Tampa and then we stayed there till 68 everything starts changing in 65 with the Camarilloca, the first sort of the first Mariel which mm-hmm. nobody remembers. It was a huge exodus of rafters and, and, uh, and, and people in boats and people went over there to pick up relatives and the regime allowed that to happen briefly and to create a, a refugee crisis. And that, that generated the freedom flights. And then you know there was a more orderly migration. So what happens is Miami starts filling up with a lot of Cubans, professional Cubans and so forth. And so Miami suddenly becomes a hub And rapidly, and uh, and so a lot of Cubans from other places like Tampa and New Jersey and everywhere else start moving also to Miami, so there's this influx from Cuba and from other parts of the U.S. in here. We were part of that flux back into now this new Cuba, this new place where we could, you know, felt, you know, whatever. So up to that point, of course, Cuba had, as I was growing up, Cuba was always like a Greek tragedy, you know. So-and-so got executed. So-and-so was arrested. Your uncle, whatever. Your your third cousin just got shot. Your, you know, we would always be sending money to Cuba, bringing families from Cuba. Again, the horror stories, you know, they were gone. They were thin. It was like, you know, people who had fled, you know, some starved, you know, emaciated place. And and so as I was growing up, for me, the word Cuba was, was you know, my God. It was like horror, pure horror. We get to Miami in 1968. I'm 14 years old. I'm in 10th grade. And I, I, they put me in Belen, Belen Jesuit, which was the new little school here. But in Cuba, it was a palatial spectacular. But they've been around since the late 19th century in, in Havana. And then in the 20th century, they built this spectacular uh, edifice. It was uh, K through 12, which I went to. And first grade, I went to in the one in Cuba. Not, nothing I've ever seen since. I mean, it was really amazing. And, uh, and the Jesuits were spectacular as educators. I mean, they weren't really doctrinaire or, you know, like some of the other, you know, religious orders that were, which I endured in my uh, parochial school days. So I get to Miami and suddenly there's Spanish everywhere. And more importantly, we, we are connecting now with live, vibrant Cuban culture. Uh, after I graduate high school, I started meeting artists and writers that are, that are coming. I hooked up with Jose Mijares, who is, uh, was a, a very prominent Cuban artist in Cuba. And Kane had come in the, in the 60s also to Miami in 68, 69, around that same time that we came to Miami. And was probably the only Cuban artist who had enough name for himself that he always worked as an artist and lived from his art. And so his house had become like a salon. Of twenty, you know, every day, so every night, after you know, my senior year and then later, and you know, in college, I would come to his house every day, and there, all these other artists that were coming from Cuba or from Spain or Puerto Rico or New York or wherever, Mexico, and were passing through Miami, they always stopped at Mijares's house. So if you parked yourself in his living room, you would meet the cream of Cuban intellectual and artistic culture. Uh, in every man of his age because Mijares was like a staple of that and they would all come to his house. And it was there that I met people like Oliver Mudes and Lidia Cabrera and and Carlos Montenegro and Carlos Alberto Montaner and, and uh, you know, countless painters and artists and, and Guillermo Cabrera Infante and uh, Carlos Frankie, You know, all these people were, I mean, I don't know how big names they are, to you or to any of your listeners, but it's just a like Cuban culture. These were like you know pivotal figures, and so I started seeing through Miharis and through all the people that came through there, and then through them and others, other artists were you know that I met, and a a living Cuba, a living. Culture. It wasn't Cuba. Stop being a simply a place of executions and tortures and communists rounding people up arbitrarily and doing all the atrocities that they find very amusing. Cuba now became, for me at that point in my life, a, 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 an alt, a different culture from that of America. Very modern, very Western. In some ways, more advanced than the certainly than the American culture I had seen in Miami. Because Miami was still a hick town, from mm-hmm. you know. Uh, from the standpoint of, of American life it wasn't a hub wasn't it wasn't even New Orleans it was you know, the middle of nowhere the resort town so the, the culture of Miami the American culture really couldn't didn't attract any attention not much anyway whereas all these people were coming from Cuba from Havana City that was 500 years old and had all this intense history and drama and 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 that, you know, that gives you a very different gravitas, a very different dimension. So that's at the point where I really became more and more interested in not just Cuban art, but Latin American art. Because it was also the beginning of that, that all these other Hispanics, uh, Latin Americans from the Caribbean, uh, from all over the Caribbean, from Venezuela, Brazil, so forth, and Argentina, Mexico, what have you, uh, were starting to also come and start, there were these little galleries that started popping up, and they were exhibiting, so this was now the 70s, and uh, suddenly I'm like, this is a gigantic alternate modernist culture of intense originality that nobody knows about in the United States. Mm-hmm. You, I would write to American museums that even had works by major Latin American artists and ask them, you know, I'm interested in writing about these people. Do you have slides? Like then it was slides. Or can I, you know, uh, I started doing freelance work for, for uh, Vanidades and other mass circulating magazines that were interested in having some culture. Think of like a Spanish language version of a Vanity Fair. I started at the age of 20 writing for these magazines, so I was interested in you know getting and you know, connecting with, and these museums who had works by LAM and Frida Kahlo and you know, Botero and whatever, fill in the blanks, big names didn't even know they had them. I knew because I, I checked on the books, such and such a painting is in the museum of what have you. And I would go to, the, I, would, I would write to that museum, and oh, let me think, uh, you know. They were all scratching their heads.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the art magazines never, or the art books, never covered anything from Latin America. Diego Rivera, maybe. Mm-hmm. That was it. Latin America was Diego Rivera and call it a day maybe Orozco maybe if it was a, a gigantically you know cosmopolitan art historian who was doing a book on 20th century art he'd throw in you know uh, José Clemente Orozco along with Diego Rivera and call it a day really call it a day that was it you know <laughs> yeah, right. and so I'm going like there's this gigantic region of the world that Europe the Europeans picked up more the Latin American thing but still very peripherally very you know very superficially, so I figured, hey, I need to do something about this. So I headed out. I was 20 years old. I headed to Mexico, and it was there that I I met with Rufino Tamayo, and interviewed him. I was you know hanging out with him and his wife for several days. In fact, I turned 21 in Mexico City, and I had the the kind of honor and and pleasure that only a young and brash and, uh, you know, individual who thinks he can do anything. I, I asked him and his wife to join me for dinner to celebrate my 21st birthday. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, my 21st birthday, I was celebrating with perhaps the greatest artist in the world at that time. <laughs>
1: You're too young yeah. to know that too that was... Too young weeks. to know, the,
0: know just how incredibly marvelous and spectacular that really was, you know? Today I'd have a thousand selfies, you know, to say, oh, here's me, here's me blowing my birthday... Oh, there wasn't a candle. Right. Whatever, you
1: know? um,
0: I went there, I interviewed a lot of these people, I came back, I started placing these articles in different magazines, including in newspapers, the Miami Herald published a couple of things of mine and at the time, and and then uh, other magazines along the way I and the next thing you know I'm I, you know I'm going back to other places and Puerto Rico and Colombia and Argentina and, and you know and I'm I'm I'm, I'm constant, and then I'm getting known to all these places and they're calling me to do catalogs and stuff and books and so more and more I started then going into art magazines publishing in uh, places like Art International or Connaissance Art in Paris Art International was out of Switzerland at the time and Arts uh, out of New York and whatever these kind of art magazines, and I you know, kind of dropped the commercial ones, and then curating shows. I came after that and giving lectures, and then you start formulating a a, a a theory of what makes Latin American art, you know, distinctive. Because everybody kept the people who bothered to write about Latin American art were, were still applying the you know the, the, the New York European model to it and, uh, oh, so-and-so is a surrealist or so-and-so is a Cubist-inspired, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, but there was also an assimilation and an adaptation of all these styles. It wasn't just somebody who decided, that oh, I, you know, so-and-so saw f- Cubist paintings in Europe and then came to Latin America and did Cubist paintings in Latin America. It wasn't, uh, there was an assimilation. There was a, an absorption. And often, s- numerous styles coincided within one artist and even within one painting or sculpture which would have been unheard of in, in, in the European-American model where different styles were very clear and, and you know it wasn't messy whereas Latin America it was more eclectic. You would have painters who, who mixed these styles up pretty much as irrespective of the fact that many of these styles in Europe and in North America, especially in Europe, were really reactions one to the other. So, for instance, the Surrealists were clearly you know, into perspective and volumetric modeling, especially the early Surrealists, right? The More realistic. It was a return to that sort of Renaissance uh, space and, and technique, applied to you know, very weird art, very weird images, but still returning to that, that technique, which had been already broken up by the Cubists. And so there was that constant, you know, tension between these styles. Whereas in Latin America, you had these things coincided. The styles were sort of like, you know, ingredients in a broth, and they all kind of combined.
1: Let me ask you this, because I noticed this. I assumed it was everywhere, but... In the American art world, especially, there seems to be tribes and cliques. And people are real worried about being seen as like hip or intellectual. And maybe one year something won't be accepted. It'll be like, oh, that's, that guy's a hack, you know. But then something happens, and a couple years later, that guy is the guy we all want to be known to have appreciated back when he was no one. Does that exist in... You know, I guess that's a staple of, of, of a lot of you know, artists
0: and styles and schools. Mm-hmm. But what occurred in, in, in Latin America is, is, is peculiar because those cliques and those things occur more on a personal level, something, and on a stylistic level, but there were, these styles were not superseded by other styles. For instance, in the 1980s in the United States and in Europe, we had something called neo-expressionism. Suddenly, like what you mentioned, oh, you know, people that were doing expressionistic art during the time of the pop movement or the or the kinetic, or the pop or the geometric stuff, oh my God, you're still doing that kind of you know expressionistic stuff. What a bore suddenly, <laughs> in nineteen eighties, it began like. These, these, you know, there was the the That uh, was Cuban and and um, there were French and German expressionists and Italians, Clemente and all these people you know, suddenly Neo-Expressionism was you know, the shit as they say in, in jazz mm-hmm. you know, hello, Latin America always had expressionist artists figurative expressionists, abstract well, informalists, they call them form, we call them formalists uh, European informalists, you know and mixing figure, figuration with that and that those styles in Latin America, they don't stop on any given moment and then another one takes over, as happened here. That's more of a market phenomenon. Hmm. That isn't really the way art typically functions. What happened in Latin America is the markets were all regional. Nobody from Paris or Tokyo or New York went to buy Latin American art. So, you know, you have these little regional styles and they kind of evolved each in their own little way and and then other styles popped up. But, yeah, there are fights, but that didn't stop people from continuing to paint expressionistic or surrealist or geometric or informalist or whatever. You know, all these things kind of continued in their own sort of way. It wasn't suddenly... The end of the dinosaurs, the rise of the mammals. Right. You know, you know, <laughs> yeah. and the end of the mammals, the rise of the cockroaches, you know, whatever. You know, <laughs> you know. No, no, no. It wasn't. You know, there wasn't an extinction event, uh-huh. and right. in mark, more market-driven art. Uh, scenarios it is an extinction event suddenly like oh my god you're still doing you know pointillism. Ah! you know mm-hmm. boom they hunt you down they starve you to death and <laughs> they run you out of town and you die under a rock somewhere
1: no
0: <laughs> th- this doesn't happen in Latin America I had a friend of mine a Chilean painter who was a brilliant guy and lived in New York and was you know very much in very hip in the art world in his day he told me one day you know Latin America is the region where songs never go out of style and that actually is very true. I grew up as, as a boy listening to songs from my grandmother's time and my parents' time and my time. And so for me, danzones are as close to my heart, even though it's a, you know, some men they date from the early 20th century, as, you know, something that was recorded yesterday. And that didn't happen to my American buddies. Yeah, you know they were like listening to rock and roll. Let's say, and if you played Frank Sinatra, yeah. who was still singing and recording, they go, "Huh? What? Who do you know? He is." Everything drops off the face of the of, of the globe. History starts five minutes before you decide something started. And that's a very American phenomenon. That wasn't Latin America. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that fascinated me. How this region has a the present is made up of pasts, and it's, a, it's dynamic, it's constantly changing, but it absorbs the pasts, and the pasts don't go away, stylistically, culturally, in terms of attitudes, values, that's one of the problems. Latin America is probably the, the only area of the world that still has some sort of weird religious fanatical obsession with Marxism, mm. whereas everybody else thinks of it as, you know, por favor... You know, <laughs> you know we, we've been there, we've done it, we bought the T-shirt, right. and we caught the disease, all yeah. right? So <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, we
1: moved on. I'm going to read to you what I think is a quote by you, Rebel Without the Inferiority Complex. If a writer or any other artist is not focused on what is before him, which is how I see what you refer to as hedonism, and doesn't reflect this in the work, then he or she may be a philosopher or an editorialist but is not an artist. The immediacy of a work of art is what gives it lasting life. It is a paradox, of course, which is to say a life-giving contradiction, the opposite of a solvable mystery. And when one focuses the thoughtful mind on what is there before us, what is imminent, then a sense of loss hazes in ineluctably. For that idea generating surrender to the imminent must pass and quickly. The trick is to enshrine that surrender in the work so others can experience it inexhaustibly. Would you care to explain the statement? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to
0: explain in there. I had even forgotten where I wrote that. A work of art is... Not simply a uh, a symbolic representation of a position ever since we fell into this black hole of postmodernism, where a number of advanced thinkers, mostly from France, started advancing the idea that our that our medium the artist no longer lives let's say in nature, no longer lives in in contact with with reality, but rather with images, media, uh, that is our world, and that is what the artist has to respond to. This is something which we first started to see in pop art, but pop art was still very much simply a a warmed-over Dadaism, you know, Duchamp and all these people really basically came up with some of those, you know, the whole ready-made idea that if I take this chair and do something to it or just isolate it you have to look at it aesthetically rather than functionally then that turns it into a work of art well that's one step but what happens is that in a lot of these more marketable styles uh, marketable not just in terms of selling but also in understandable people who think they're into art wealthy collectors want to understand what the hell they just paid 50 billion dollars for you know (laughs) that seems fair (laughs) yeah (laughs) And so uh, the, the result is that they can you, can, you say, oh, all I have to do is take out the function out of this object, and it's art. I get that, and here's your $25 trillion for this. And so they are happy, and they can then pass it along and feel very sophisticated. In reality, that's just one step in a process. I take this chair, I, I forget it's a chair, and now I have to come up with some way of, 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 of accepting it as an imminent object. Imminent meaning like there. It's, unavoid- it's, it's, it's unavoidable. It's there. This table is here. You're here. I am here. You know, and, and we are imminent in our, in our states of being, in our consciousness. So, to everything in this room is. So, once you enter into that level of consciousness, you're still in st- stage one as an artist. Okay, I've taken away chair from the object. Now I'm not looking at it as a chair. I'm looking at it as forms, as shapes, as colors, as shadows, as lines. And it automatically evokes, from the way I look at it, tropes. Tropes, figures. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? What does it remind me of? Because things have connections with all these other things that are stored in our memory whose imminent essential properties are... Shared by other objects. I do this with my creative writing students. This is like the first thing I do in the first day of class. I tell them the first thing you got to do is forget the functions of things. So I tell them, take out a piece of paper, you know, something that you can crumple up and throw away, and please don't use my syllabus. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they look for another piece of paper. You know. <laughs> like, okay, let's crumple it up. Close your eyes. Crumple it up and listen to it. <laughs> okay, what does that sound like? Oh, it sounds like paper. No, forget paper. Don't even think paper. Anything but paper. So it sounds like fire. It sounds like bacon sizzling. It sounds like leaves. It sounds like rain. All these things. Static on on a radio. Excellent. That's exactly what I want to hear. So here you have this crumpled piece of paper that has an imminent, that means present to the mind and cannot be bracketed. Bracketing means I can put it aside. Mm -hmm. I can put aside that this is a lighter. But I can't put aside its size, its shape, its weight, its temperature. Those physical properties are not bracketable. I may not even know what this is if I've never seen a lighter. I may not know what it is. That wonderful movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, and there's this right. plane that drops a, a Coke bottle, and the and the people in the bush don't know what the hell it is, and they start coming up with what, what could it possibly be? The gods dropped this thing, and we got to return it. So, and, th- and that is actually. What I'm talking about, that that process, you bracket, you put in brackets, it comes from Husserl, Edmund Husserl, was like the greatest philosopher of the last 300 years, father of modern phenomenology, says you can bracket these things, and and then we, we are dealing with a thing that is in front of us, that is obviously here, and whose properties might be connected to other things. But he didn't go that far. I'm the one who introduced that element of tropes and the intimate connection, so what Husserl was saying is that these imminent properties are now the, the ground, the foundation for a phenomenological view of this object. But I'm saying that that's not entirely possible unless you're using tropes. And what tropes do is that they give you this link to all these other things. And that's what poetry is about. That's what art is about. And, and that's what living the artist's life is about. So That's the hedonism of which I speak, the pleasure of interacting with the imminent reality of all things. And then on the basis of that connection between crumpled paper, fire, leaves, rain, sizzling bacon, and anything else you can think of, is where you start creating a new web that isn't just chair, I sit in it. That's what Husserl called the familiar attitude, the natural attitude. A a familiar. You interact with things in a familiar. You can't do this continuously. You go, you know, you lose your mind. But creatively, you start with that. What happens with, with with a lot of contemporary art is that it starts and it stops with that. Oh, I took away the function of the object, and I'm throwing it back at you. And now it's your now it's you, viewer, who has to grapple with this. And so it's like a little game. But I tell them this is just step one. Step two are the tropes, understanding how these things are connected. Then you select from that and you create a whole new interconnection of things with that imminent object. And now comes the final product. Then the, the, the third stage is you bring in the function. Okay, it's, it's a piece of paper, which is also connected to water refracting in a swimming pool, because if you open up that paper, it has pretty much the same properties as waves inside of waves inside of a swimming pool and a topography, a landscape, and the bacon, and the fire, and the leaves, and the crunched ice, and the whatever else. So suddenly you've got this object, which is a prism of of tropes, metaphors, and other connections, which are alive in your awareness of this object, if you're looking at it phenomenologically, if you're looking at it in terms of its imminent reality and how that is shared tropologically with other things does that make any sense mm-hmm. okay yeah. so that's what i'm referring to then comes the, th- the third stage is you're returning now you're taking it out of the brackets you're bringing the function back into your awareness but now the object has been transformed now it's not just a piece of paper it's a piece of paper that has all these connections now you're thinking like an artist and now comes the fourth stage which only you can come up with, I tell them. What do we do with this? That's where the art really begins. Anybody can take the first three steps. What we don't know what's gonna happen is, in your mind, what leaps out from that? What leaps out from the connection between crumpled paper, topography, landscape, crunched ice, sizzling bacon, and all these other things, the sounds, the textures, everything of the paper, the the view of the, the paper, what happens after that? That's the unpredictable. It may have nothing to do with paper. You might suddenly, in the midst of all of that, write a wonderful poem about a building falling down, or um, a bird flying, or a beautiful woman, you know, walking past you and winking at you, or indigestion. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We don't know what what might come from that experience is, I have nothing to do with paper or any of these other things. That's where the art is.
1: Can you choose a, a piece of art that most people are aware of and... Can you take us through those steps, especially the fourth step, and explain that? Because I think that would help. Well,
0: sometimes that, that fourth step, that four step is, is a leap out of the process. Mm-hmm. So how do artists come up with a, a whole new image that is haunting? and that, that, th- Think of Van Gogh. Yeah. Van Gogh. Everybody knows Van Gogh. Right. Right? So let's say Starry Night, one of, one of the most famous paintings of the last right. 150 years, 200 years. How do you get to that? You know, people stand in front of it and like, go, oh, it's so beautiful in the swirling sky and all this. And Well, at some point, Van Gogh was in the countryside and looking at nature and trees and wind and all these dynamics, called dynamic forms, clouds, are di- trees are, are dynamic forms, especially if they're being rustled with wind. It's, a tree is a form, but it's a dynamic form, somewhere in between a solid form and a dynamic form. Think of a tornado or, or clouds or as more dynamic forms. But we all look at clouds and we know what they are, but there are no two clouds that are alike. It's not like saying chair or apple or uh, basketball, you know, things like that, which have much more identifiable forms. Uh, but we all know what clouds look like, and yet there are no two clouds alike. So, The whole idea of a form, of a dynamic form, of something that's identifiable but not delineated, something that belongs to a category, but it's seemingly infinite variations of that category. You're an artist, you look at those things. And if you're a Van Gogh, you're looking at them all the time, and you're wondering about that. And so that starts bringing in this whole idea of dynamics, of... Recognizability as a dynamic event in the mind. And that can get transferred over into the whole notion of space as dynamic. And then you look at trees. Look at the cypress trees. They're not just sitting there, they're twirling, they're twisting. They're, the, the paint is giving you uh, an energy. And so suddenly this tree isn't just a tree, it, it becomes a lightning rod, it becomes a, a funnel. Uh, even maybe a, a tornado, something that connects the energies of the sky with the energies of the earth, which now becomes energized. is isn't just something flat and, and, and static. It too has energy. It too is full of, of vibrancy. You may not be able to see it, but it's there. And, and, and then that gets transferred. It's another trope called metonymy, which is the transference of values from one thing to something adjacent to it, to the sky, and of course the clouds. And why not the stars themselves? And now why not see everything as a dynamic form? Right? That process had to go through as well. What do we see? We see swirls and, and whirlpools of light and you go, wow, how did he come up with that? Was he on a drug? <laughs> Maybe,
1: but you know. But, but I think... I think what, that's the most common phrase I've heard to argue. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. guy was on drugs. Yeah, it
0: goes, he dropped some acid. I dropped some acid once and I had that exact same de- idea. Well, please. You know, a lot of my students say, "Oh, you know, drugs are, are really great. You know, for creativity." Go, no, they're not. You know, <laughs> right. actually, the opposite is the case. Oh, but look at the. Oh, please. You know, and that time I've never smoked a joint in my life. Mm-hmm. Not even that. Never mind anything harder than that. Mm-hmm. The strongest thing I've ever smoked in my life is a cigar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they go, that's not possible, Professor. And I go, "Yes, it is." What, you know, so. What happens is that those that thinking process is suddenly reflected in this painting. Now, of course, you know, we don't get all the notes on it, but if you look at the drawings and if you look at the whole process of his, of his creativity, I can see how he was thinking these things. And metonymy is an interesting trope, because we think of tropes usually as by resemblance. The, the crumpled paper, they use the same example I was talking about before, Sounds like this, looks like this when you spread it out, feels like this when you feel it. That's resemblance. That's metaphor. But metonymy functions by proximity. So let's say I said to them, um, okay, let's say somebody does a portrait of you. Okay, you commission an artist to do a portrait of you, and you go and pick up your portrait, and you, when you, you it's a perfect rendition of you, except that he has surrounded you by, uh, with other objects, with. Um, um, Bombs and knives and bayonets and objects of war, weapons. And you go, but I'm not that person. I'm, you know, I'm a peaceful guy who, like, you know, reads books. And, and so you're, you're, you're upset that the artist has surrounded you by these things that aren't you. Why? Because that's, that's a metonymic transference. The things that surround you get transferred to you in that image, in that world of the painting, that little universe, which is the painting. If you walk into an armory, that doesn't make you a soldier or it doesn't make you a person who's in the weapons. Mm-hmm. You're just walking through an armory, uh, through an arsenal. You know, That's not you. But I go, metonymy is important to our understanding of the world. We use it all the time, as we do metaphor. A room is a metonymic experience. I tell them, you're in a classroom. What do you expect to see in a classroom? Desks and computer and, you know, an eraser board and whatever. You don't expect to walk into this classroom and see a zebra. Uh, <laughs> you don't expect to, you don't, you know, you walk into this classroom and you see a fountain in the middle of it. Right. But I bet in your class that there's a zebra. I well, had a fountain, actually. <laughs> um, but you don't expect to see a Roman ballista in the middle of your classroom. Why? Because you have a metonymic way of organizing the world. This room is a classroom. You walk out into the hall, and you have no problem walking from here to there. That's literally one thin door away, and that's another metonymic experience.
1: It's a hallway.
0: You don't expect to see desks. You don't expect to see eraser boards or computers. You expect to see hall stuff, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And then you go down the stairs, and you go into the party lot, and each of those is conceived metonymically. In terms of the coherence of the objects that all together form the sentence or the paragraph of that space, you live going from one metonymic experience to the other. Everybody does. And that becomes natural. You get out, of, you go into your car. That also has a set of things that are in the car that, that are read and are coherent to the syntax, the grammar of that space. The road, you get to the grocery store, bingo, another place. And you may go through 50 of these contexts in the space of three hours. And you don't go nuts. Each one has its own theatrical space. However, as artists, intellectually, I expect you to start changing things around in each of these spaces. What would it be like if you saw a zebra in the cereal aisle of Publix? <laughs> you know, what, would it, what, would, what would come through your mind... If you saw this or that in a complete... That's what surrealism does. That's what Magritte, René Magritte does. Talk about another famous artist, right? He'll give you a rock, perfectly painted rock, suspended in space over an ocean. What is going on here? Well, there's, there's nothing weird about the ocean. There's nothing weird about the rock. If that rock were sitting on the ground, you would think of it as a very pedestrian sort of view of a rock on the ground in a painting. If there wasn't a rock hovering over the ocean, you'd see the ocean and the clouds, and you go, well, what a boring marine scene. But all you got to do is just introduce a juxtaposition. And then the way that you read that scene, you know, (laughs) forces you to come up with new ideas. So realism is, is all about that. Van Gogh is all about this process. Now... What happens when you confront these very famous images? They're inexhaustible. Because it isn't... Magritte isn't hanging a rock over the ocean because he's trying to make a point about global warming. Mm -hmm. Or he's not trying to make a point about um, resource management. Oh, we have to protect this rock because it has... uh, you know, magnesium and iron and things that are running out. Right. You know, and he's not telling us about the ocean as, you know, oh my God, it's swelling or it's shrinking or it's whatever. He, I mean, nobody thinks about that when they see the, you know, the, the, the suspended rock over the ocean in the Magritte or the swirling stars in the Van Did they have feelings for nature and the desire to protect it? I'm sure they did, as, all, as we all do. But a work of art isn't an editorial comment on an issue of the day. You can use an issue of the day to create something that is that has that enigma. That's a different tackle altogether. Right. Right. So Shakespeare was writing a, in a time in which the monarchy was very unstable, and he approached it in a certain way. And he gives us characters caught up in the struggle with their personal demons and the demons of power. And next thing you know, we have Hamlet. But nobody would think about, at least no profound person, would think about Hamlet as a, as a screed or a manifesto on Shakespeare's view of how to, uh, you know, whether monarchy or democracy, were, you know, or what kind of democracy, and, blah, 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 and that's it, and that's all we're going to look at. Yes, politics is a part of Hamlet. Of course it is. In fact, what's curious is that many times when people produce Hamlet, in, in movies, they take out the political, the Machiavellian part of it, the political interest in, in the play take, gets yanked because they prefer the Freudian, you know, Hamlet is issue with his mom, the dead father, the uncle, the whole incest number, you know, that, because of course we live in a psychoanalytical age, so that became the, the thing to look at, I other the politics, you know. In fact, the only film I've ever seen in which the entire text of Hamlet is included in the movie is the marvelous Kenneth Branagh version, Mm -hmm. which is the only one worth seeing. The rest you can, you know... (laughs) Olivier's nice. He's a great actor. But, you know, that too gets edited. So what gets edited is interesting. What gets edited is the political side of it. And they leave all the other stuff in it. All of these things are in place, but nobody would think of reducing Hamlet to a statement about politics or a statement about anything else. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, well we come back to it, well we keep making new versions of it, well we keep analyzing it, well we keep, there's libraries written about Hamlet, why? Because it's inexhaustible. Mm -hmm. And it's inexhaustible because at some point the artist understood that there was a world, an enigmatic world, in that box that he made. And that's what's interesting. Mm
1: I may be misunderstanding you, but I heard someone say recently that they were talking about the phenomenon of the Hamilton musical. And this historian was saying, well, it's not historically accurate. And they said there's this tendency or every generation, at least in America, to go back and look at the founding fathers and find the guy that kind of fits their morals or the are the things that are important to them or that they want to demonize right? yeah exactly and they're they trying to make a comment about their contemporary times nobody really fits any of that precisely so you have to kind of butcher it a little bit or you have to you know cut uh, you remember this the, the original Cinderella story where they had to cut the toes to fit into the to the slipper like the original Cinderella uh, story is about incest I,
0: I mean do. the way the way way the earliest folk tales really isn't an evil Stepmother. It's I believe it's an evil father who is who is uh, abusing her, and then she hides in the prince's castle as a Cinder girl, and uh, it becomes a much more interesting, right. from, uh, you know. And then eventually that gets Walt Disneyfied into right. this, you know,
1: stuff. I find that in art as well in literature where. It seems like, like you mentioned the Freudian, when everybody was about Freud, everyone started to relook at things under, right. with his eyes, or maybe uh, with Darwin before him, um, you know, Marx, uh, you know, any, any number of... Yeah, of we start seeing it through those lens. Right. Is that somewhat what you're talking about?
0: It is, but what happens is that when we're dealing with a more commercial work of art, then it's pitching it to a to an audience that has the ability to take one or two steps mm-hmm. in that process. And that's it. But when we're dealing with we're great not, art, then it's not about that. We're not allowing it to be what it is. Is that correct? Yeah, we're not allowing it to be what it is because we're trying to sell it now as, oh, let's use the uh, whatever, the uh, Washington Crossing the Delaware story as... Uh, as a Freudian metaphor for uh, entering the unconscious and surprising you know the demons within <laughs> us uh, that are that are you know feasting or you know toasting in the warm houses and we surprise them and you know <laughs> and so we we do Washington Crossing the Delaware as some sort of like revolutionary piercing of the super ego and oh, yeah, so there. somebody's really said that no uh, that <laughs> somebody will somebody will yeah. and they'll steal it from me and no oh, <laughs> they, won't even, they won't even buy me a meal but we can do that with anything right but that's that is only how's that a creativity on a very basic level on a very primary first step mm-hmm. and of course we have gotten to a point where we're so inured to bullshit in, in the arts that, that we think of that as creative right. that wow oh. he made me see Washington crossing the Delaware uh, as a psychoanalytical thing that's pretty cool you know <laughs> No, it's just like, just change a little bit the state set and throw in an idea, and done. Great art, well, that's a whole different story. Great art takes 15, 20, 30 steps beyond that. And what happens is that it, it often takes several generations for people to catch up. Don't forget Shakespeare wasn't, he was popular in his day, but it, we almost lost him. After the that period, he went into obscurity and then people kind of kept bringing him back but then they would chop it up and rewrite the plays and make him prettier or make them mm-hmm. nicer take out some of the you know the weirder stuff and take out some of the body language Shakespeare's full of body language and puns mm-hmm. My God, you know, when people here, you know, look at him oh my God, Professor, that's all boring. Oh, really? How about this pun and this one? Wow, it's downright pornographic. Okay, great. Then they, they, get, then they come alive, you know, and, right. which is, of course, not exactly the way to bring them alive. But the point is that they, they miss things because they, they can't turn it, they can't translate it. we become, I guess, an audience of translate that story into something I already have in my head so that I can feel comfortable with right. it. Right, right. These aren't works of art. These are translations into uh, attitudes that need to be addressed in some way, into a waiting market of X millions of people that are going to pay 150 bucks a chair to see it, and we're going to make you know 35 million dollars, and everyone's going to be happy. That's what's going on there. Not a crime, mm-hmm. but my point is that great art emerges in the very rich loneliness of a creative process that even the artist doesn't get. One of the things I tell my students is, and I give them a, a set of 10 characteristics that I look for in a poem or an a work of art, and the last one I call Vitality. I need to stand in front of a work of art or read a poem or hear a piece of music and feel like it, this has escaped the artist's intentions, this has a life of its own. Hmm. And this happens to me when I write poems that I find are good poems. I start writing a poem about fill and blank, whatever topic, right? And it turns into something else. And if you're a real artist, you don't put the brakes on that. Okay, you didn't get your poem about, you know, how much you're enjoying this kale salad. Uh, But, (laughs) don't get me wrong, I would never write a poem about that. Well, no, (laughs) But, but... I start writing about my kale salad and it turns into a poem about money or about betrayal or about God knows what. And I didn't think about that when I started. It it said, oh, yeah, sure, kale. No, we're going this way. Why? Because there are many different personality structures within each of us. And that's something we get from Jung much more than from Freud, right? The autonomous complexes and stuff like that. And one of them is the artist. Not everybody has that one awakened. Thank God. Imagine a world filled with artists. I mean, I'd I'd hop on a flying saucer and get the hell out of here. I mean, please take me to a planet where there's only 0.001% of the population who is like this, and the rest of them are lovely people who do all sorts of really functional things. Right. But my point is that the artist is the one who has a personality that is different from all other personalities. I ask my students, how many people have you been today? What do you mean? You're many different people. When you're balancing a checkbook, you're a different person. When you're, you know, when you're, uh, when you're in love, you know, when you're uh, you know, doing this, that, or the other, when you're in class, when you're at work. When you're with this friend or this other person you know, you're very different, radically different people. I'm not saying like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, multiple personality disorder, but different sides of us come out even when we interact with different people. You know, I do sort of crazy things in class. I go, you don't think I do this all the time? I'd be locked up. I do it here. I have my teacher personality on right now, but I, you, you go to my office and we sit down and have a conference. It's not going to be this. It's going to be a different side of me and so forth and so on but then there's an artist personality and that artist doesn't care what kind of mood I'm, what kind of day I'm having you know that's another thing that they, that my students and, and I say my students also people in general don't understand oh Van Gogh must have had a really good day because he look at those pretty sunflowers he painted he may have had the worst day of his life and he painted perhaps the, the most joyous painting of his career and even having and the opposite is true it is not a reflection of how you're feeling. Who cares how you're feeling? I asked them. Let's say you're sitting in a bus. You sit down on a bus, you're taking a ride downtown, and somebody sits next to you and starts telling you what kind of day they're having. Perfect stranger. What would you do? You'd get up and change seats or something, you know, what kind of a nut would, would would start talking to you about what kind of day they're having.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that what you think an artist is doing? What kind of day he or she is having? For God's sake, who cares? First of all, a work of art is not done in a day. So the idea that somehow it's just like a, a, a an expression of a certain moment in their life is ridiculous. Because, you know, you may have been working on this painting for five years. Really? You've had only one feeling in those five years? Wow, you really do need help. Uh, <laughs> I mean, more than, than we can give you, actually. <laughs> but it's not about that. It's about what you know about the human condition, including feelings, ideas, events, things that happen, things that don't, frustrations, this, that, everything, everything gets reflected in there. And it's what you know about it, what you have come to understand about it. And even that may not be ultimately what your audience gets. It may it may get something completely different. Mm-hmm. That's fine. It's a living thing. It's a living thing. It's not just what was in the mind of that artist when, when that person was creating this thing. God, if that was it, then then the artist wouldn't need to create Hamlet or Starry Night or Meninas or Don Quixote or you know Fathers and Sons or you know Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. All we would need to do is you know ask the artist, please write down what you're trying to get across on a piece of paper in one paragraph, and that's what we're going to look at. But it can't be that the artist, at the end of the day, will may only give you a very limited view of his or her own work. You see that a lot in, in artists, uh, in interviews with artists or comments of artists on their own work. They're not trying to be coy. You know, oh, I was just thinking about that pizza I ate yesterday. Oh, really, Mr. Paul, I guess I really would oh, yeah, you know. And, well, you know, I'm not saying he said that, but whatever. You know, just, mm-hmm. what were you thinking about when you wrote this poem? Well, I don't know. I was, like, walking down the street and I saw, you know, uh, a dead pigeon and... Uh, it was, <laughs> You know, maybe that really is what triggered it. But what happens? The rest of the personalities of that artist is not aware of it. The danger is when we think of the artist as simply a secretary for the other things that are going on in the art in the person's mind. And so, so the artist personality simply becomes an executor of an expression. Okay, so give us a sculpture about global warming. Oh sure, here it is. Or give us a a painting that deals with whatever an X Y or Z issue of the day. If the artist is a prisoner of all these other things, and that's what the artist will give you, because you know the artist is bound and gagged and basically compelled to execute a statement about this, like a speechwriter. You know, right. imagine a speechwriter for the president or for a major figure uh, Write me a speech that has these. That that may not be what the that writer really thinks it's mm-hmm. their job you're getting paid for this and so if we reduce the artist to the secretary of collective issues then that's what you're going to get and that's what you get in these art fairs in and, and, and vast quantities not every single thing but it's the things that the, the people who have most of the people who have the money and the power to invest in it uh, are looking for They're looking for things that they can readily understand and then show off as, look what I have that expresses this urgent issue about recycling
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and whatever. There may be a whole lot of other things happening in that thing, which they didn't get, but please don't tell them because they'll have a nervous
1: breakdown. (laughs) We're going to head on home now, but we'll check back in with Mr. Josa in a few months where... He'll read some of his poetry, talk about specific pieces in his collection, and muse on the nature of art and politics. And if you're still in an artsy mood, you might give a listen to our interview with radioactive heart artist Jason Hargrove back on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 123. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs)